Welcome to Highbrow. I'm your host, Mina. And before we get started, well, I don't know, this is going to be a chatty episode anyway, so I guess it doesn't really matter when we start. As long as we get there, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey, my friends. But I just have some news to share. I recently graduated from this acting conservatory program that I've been doing for the past two years, and I've kind of talked about it here and there, just like dropping little tidbits in that I've been in an acting program. What is that Kim Kardashian meme again? I'm dropping hints. I'm dropping hints that I'm an actor. I'm an actor. (laughs) But if I'm going to be fully honest, I feel like I'm still not quite comfortable like fully saying that I am an actor. Because usually when you say that, people are like, oh, well, can I see your work? Like, what have you been in? And then because I've been in school, I haven't been in anything, right? Because I've just been training. So it's kind of like an awkward conversation and I've just like, I've just not had it by not saying what I've been doing. But it is really important to me because I've dedicated so much of my time to it and I've really enjoyed doing it. It's also something that I've always loved doing as a kid. Like as a kid, I was always in um, theater productions. I went to theater summer camp and stuff like that. I stopped doing theater when I got to high school because my high school's theater program was incredibly toxic. I don't know. Whenever I talk about this type of stuff to people, they're like, oh, the theater kids at my high school were weird. That was not the case at my high school. The theater kids at my high school were very popular and it was very clicky and it was like a flex for you to be in the drama program. It was giving Sharpay and Ryan, like people were really dedicated to it in a way that was very exclusive. And I felt very intimidated. So I kind of let the whole theater thing go. I never tried out for anything. It got even worse because I went to a very white school. And for some reason, our director kept picking plays that featured non-white characters. And so the white kids at my school would play all these characters. And what really pissed me off, and this is like a memory that saves me to this day, is they were doing Miss Saigon and I'm Vietnamese. So it definitely hit home because one, that play fucking sucks because first of all, I don't think a Vietnamese woman has ever played Miss Saigon on Broadway. And also it's just like a white fetishist pipe dream. Like this idea of a Vietnamese woman falling for him, carrying his baby and then killing herself. Like, no, absolutely fucking not. Um, so I was like not into the play's source material, the musical's source material to begin with, which is why I didn't audition for it. But then they ended up casting this white girl and a couple other white people to play the Vietnamese people. And she was wearing a traditional Aozai and she dyed her hair black. Like I remember one day a bunch of the theater kids came in and they had their hair dyed black. And I was like, what the fuck is going on in my school? And I wanted to write an opinion piece about it for my school's newspaper because I was on the newspaper and my school newspaper teacher, the the adult who was heading our newspaper department, she was like, no, I can't let you publish anything about the theater department in a negative way because it's a conflict of interest because then they won't let us interview them anymore. And I was like, what are the politics of this business? Like I'm in high school. Are you kidding? 
And so that left a whole distaste in my mouth in which I never pursued theater or acting outside of um, my childhood. But it's something that I've always really loved to do and I feel like I've had a knack for. And so I really have so much of you all to thank because without the support that I've gotten from YouTube, I wouldn't have been able to afford my program. So I'm really thankful for that. Anyways, um, other exciting news, I'm going to Italy. Or I guess when this episode airs, I will already have been in Italy. So I'm in Italy currently as you are listening to this. (laughs) Unless you listen to this like weeks after it was published, then I will no longer be in Italy um, because I'm only going there for a week. But I'm going to Italy to work. It's a, a fashion school that I'm working with and I'm covering their student showcase at the end of the year. And it's in Florence, Italy, which I'm so excited to go to because one, I love fashion shows just in general, but also like I've never been to Florence. I went to Italy for the first time last year for a wedding, but that was um, along the Amalfi Coast. Very beautiful, obviously like super blessed to have gotten the opportunity to go, but I'm just excited to be in a new place. I've never solo traveled before. Actually, I solo traveled once to Paris, but I don't know if that necessarily counts because it was during fashion week. And so I knew people who were in Paris at the same time. And I also have friends who live in Paris all year round versus like here, I don't have any friends who live in Italy. So I will be very much by myself. (laughs) And it's exciting, but also a little scary because... I'm also someone who really does enjoy hanging out with people and I love like sharing experiences and so I'm worried about being a little lonely but we'll see we'll see how that goes I'll give you an update about how I felt about it but yeah and then I guess the other big thing that happened in my life was going to the Taylor Swift era's tour (laughs) I got the opportunity to go see Taylor Swift and I was so freaking excited about it because something you might not know about me is I love Taylor Swift I'm not like a diehard fan I don't really follow much about her life. I didn't even know she was dating Maddie Healy until people told me about it, but I have a lot of nostalgia for her old stuff, especially like I have a very poignant memory of listening to Teardrops on My Guitar for the first time ever. It was like on my friend's birthday mixed tape. And yeah, people used to make those for their birthday parties. They used to compile a bunch of songs together and burn them on a CD and then give them out as party favors. And it was, I guess, technically illegal to be (laughs) distributing music in that way, but it was a good time. It was how I discovered a lot of cool new music and Teardrops on My Guitar was one of them. Summer Love by Justin Timberlake was another. That birthday party was honestly, it was a hit. It was a hit for me. But yeah, I've grown up with Taylor Swift and so... And I've never seen her in person. I'm not someone who goes to concerts very often. The last concert I went to was... Okay, actually the last concert I went to was Harry Styles when he was at Madison Square Garden last year. But that was also because my friend had a free ticket. So I haven't actually like purchased a ticket to go to a concert since 2015 when I went to see Justin Bieber. And that was in Montreal, Canada because I was studying in Montreal at the time. And that was a really sick show because I was a believer. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. I was a believer. I don't talk about it anymore because I'm not anymore and I it's weird because I don't even feel like a sense of nostalgia for a lot of Justin Bieber songs because my Belieber era was so short-lived. It was like two years only and it was only during the Purpose tour. So 
I feel like maybe if I actually grew up being obsessed with Justin Bieber, then it would he would hit different for me now. But because it was such a short-lived time, like I really don't care about what he's doing. Anyways, yeah, that tour was purpose tour was crazy because I was a believer, I was a diehard. I I got merchandise. We had like pretty good tickets and it definitely felt like it, I was part of something, just screaming along with other fans who were equally, if not more, obsessed with Justin Bieber. When I went to see Harry, that was a little different because my friend was invited by Gucci and she brought me with her, which I'm so grateful for because even though I wasn't a huge fan of Harry, I didn't even listen to his newest album before I went. Um, I still had a really good time because I think just in general, if you're a pop star, you like you do your little dance, you do your little talks, and you do your little singing, and it's and it's great. It's it's more of a performance. Whereas I think maybe going to like a smaller acoustic show, if you're not familiar with the artist, it wouldn't be as fun. I don't know. Feel free to disagree. I had a great time seeing Harry. I don't care what anyone says about him. I think he's a great performer. He's full of a uh, he's full of vibrance. His outfits were fun, and yeah, I I was up there dancing. I came in kind of as a cynic. I was like, I'm not going to enjoy this as much as everyone else. And especially with all the swarming fangirls that were coming in, I was like, oh my god, I'm in the wrong place. But I had fun. I love them. They were all great. And it was really cute that there were so many parents who accompanied their daughters there. I thought that was really sweet. Like a lot of dads were super into it wearing their feather boas. I could really appreciate the whole spectacle. So Taylor. Taylor is someone I know all the music of and... I had a really good time because my friend Francesca, her dad works for a company that owns like a box or whatever. So she gets concert, free concert tickets all the time. She's super blessed. They are box seats, so you're not like on the floor. But I think particularly for the kind of concerts that I like, like I don't need to be on the floor. I don't need to be in close proximity to the music artist because I'm kind of there for just like vibes and to just have fun. And also crowds kind of stress me out, so... The box seats were like perfectly fine for me and there was like food and drinks and I felt like kind of like I was at a baseball show. I've never been to a baseball show, but this is just like what I assume a baseball show is like. When a song you like comes on, you're like singing along to it, but you're also kind of just like talking to other people in the seats around you and it's not like not like too intense of an experience. It's just like purely like I'm having a great time um, and I'm relaxed. So yeah, it, it was like one of the best days of this year for me. Using that as a segue because I read this article that was posted on The New Yorker recently and it was great. It's called How to Hire a Pop Star for Your Private Party. It was posted May 29th. And if you don't know, private parties are like an entire business within the music industry like you can hire basically any musician to perform at a private party if you have the right amount of money for it because obviously it's going to cost way more than concert tickets but um the first time I had heard of musicians like coming to do privates I guess like technically during fashion week they're considered private shows when um brands do after parties and they invite singers to come and sing I got to see Tinashe during fashion week oh my god I forget what I forget what brand it was which is like so bad but it was one of those events where I kind of like I agreed to because I saw Tinashe was gonna perform and I was like yeah obviously okay I, I don't know if this is considered a fashion event but when I first signed with IMG the first event that they took me to that really blew my mind it was during pride month 
two years ago and Madonna was performing at the Boom Boom Room, <laughs> which is um, this like event. It's it's a bar on top of the standard, but I think you have to be a member. And then if you're not a member, like the only way to go is through events. And a lot of fashion brands like to throw parties in the Boom Boom Room because it is very chic. You can see like the entirety of Manhattan it has like really nice views. It's a good size and the bathrooms are really fun. I don't know if anyone's anyone's seen the Boom Boom Room bathrooms, but there's one or two bathrooms where it actually like overlooks um all the buildings below. It's like a, a like a huge window. It's 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 very nice. It's a very nice spot to pee or throw up depending on how much you drank. But yeah, I got to see Madonna and I was like really close to her because I was with my manager and I guess he's been, you know, part of the fashion industry for a while. So he's seen a lot of these kinds of performances at the Boom Boom Room and he was like, no, we have to stand right here so we can see her. And she like walked along um, the bar space and yeah, I've, I've never been so close to a performing celebrity before in my life. So that was really fun. Okay, going back to privates. So I guess that was my experience with privates. But I also remember I was talking to this guy who is a friend of my friend. And he was telling me he grew up in Connecticut, where a lot of rich people live, if you're not familiar with Connecticut, you know, that's like the stereotypes where all the old money people are from. They're from Connecticut, very nice area of the US, nothing to do there, absolutely nothing to do. But I guess go boating and ride horses, or whatever rich people do. He told me that he knew someone who had a bat mitzvah and invited the Jonas Brothers. We're the same age. So this was like back when the Jonas Brothers were huge. Not saying that they're not huge now, but you know what I mean? When they were like the talk of the town for tweens. And apparently her family paid like a million dollars or something to get the Jonas Brothers in, which is insane. Connecticut rich people, I'm telling you. That was when I realized that you could hire celebrities, I guess, for performing private parties but back in the day most celebrities would not agree to it because it was considered kind of like lowbrow it's something you do when you're no longer the it musician like you're kind of retiring um you're aging they call them in the industry nostalgia performers but in the last couple years things have really changed for example, in January 2023, Beyonce did her first show in more than four years at a new hotel in Dubai, which apparently earned her $24 million for an hour-long set. It was controversial because the hotel was owned by the government of Dubai, which um, is a government that has criminalized homosexuality. So a lot of fans were like, what the fuck are you doing? Especially because her newest album, Renaissance, she said was a project honoring black queer culture. So people were like, what the fuck? And there's like this one person on Twitter, they were even like, I get it, everyone wants their coin, but when you're that rich, is it that worth it? Because Beyonce and Jay-Z, I think their net worth is like a billion dollars combined. I don't know if it's gone up because this is a couple years ago when I heard about it. But yeah, she's definitely not penny pinching. She's definitely not desperate for money. But she still did this performance and that's why a lot of people were like, what the fuck? She's not the only person who has done performances for, you know, sketchy people before because um, before 
the Libyan dictator Gaddafi was assassinated in 2011. Members of his family organized these events that featured performances by 50 Cent, Mariah Carey, Usher, and Nelly Furtado. And then during Arab Spring, when Gaddafi was um, unleashing his forces onto protesters, that's when all the celebrities who performed were like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that. And they um, announced their plans to donate their windfall to charity. So, yeah, celebrities do questionable things all the time. And most of the times, we don't even know about it. Because for a lot of private performances, both parties have to sign NDAs. And usually no photos or social media posting is allowed. The only times we really hear about it is when things get leaked. So for Beyonce, the $24 million, that was leaked information. We weren't supposed to actually know how much she was getting paid. I guess like the question that I had and that was answered in this article, but when I was reading it, I was like, why did this happen? Like, why did celebrities go from thinking this is only something that people who are expired from their fame do to something that is aspirational and something that they want to do. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the music industry has changed a lot. So like for much of history, the way you made money as a music artist was through selling recordings. But when CDs vanished, revenue sank by more than 50%. And digital subscription platforms like Spotify, Apple, and YouTube that took over the CDs, they pay artists only a fraction of what physical sales once delivered. So given these new circumstances, people have become quote-unquote sellouts um, in the streaming economy. And also the way that people interact with music is just a lot different now with streaming and with, you know, like TikTok and how people would just like adding clips of music into their videos without really giving attention to the actual artist who sings or who produces this music. David Viacelli, who's a veteran booking agent in Chicago, he was interviewed in this feature and he said, a kid could know a track inside out, listen to it a thousand times that summer and not know the artist's name. They're just surfing along the wave of whatever is getting spit out. The truth is, now young artists know they're going to have, even if they're successful, two to four years, maybe. And so that means that they want to monetize everything as fast and hard as they can. I remember reading this um, article a bit ago about how everyone's like a sellout now and how being a sellout is not something that looked down upon as it used to be like in the 90s and early 2000s and that's just because people just want to make money i think with the grind set and with hustle culture on top of that it's like aspirational to show how much you want to make money <laughs> And also speaking of money, we have more billionaires than ever before. So the Wall Street and Silicon Valley bros that would have once splurged on like front row seats at an arena show now have the income to afford private shows. Despite these changes, like a lot of musicians don't actually like doing privates. Um, Viacelli said also that corporate events can be sort of soul destroying because it's not really an audience. It's a convention or a party and you just happen to be making noise at one end of it. And... In the article, they were talking about how, like, at some private shows, like, people really are into it. Like, they're like, oh, my God, like, this is my favorite singer. And it's a really, like, good audience. But then other times, the audience may not even be paying attention. They might be having their own conversations. And you're kind of just, like, performing in the background. Um, which, when you're, like, a top performer or when you're used to performing, like, stadium shows, this can be really disorienting of an experience. It can be really humbling to be honest. But at the same time, like I don't necessarily feel bad for them because 
if you can make six or seven figures in one afternoon, then who are you to really complain, right? Like we've all debased ourselves for a job before. I worked at Disney, which I've publicized a lot, but honestly, the emotional labor I had to perform at that job, just like putting on a happy face, like smiling, wishing everyone to have a magical day, every single person who I talked to, even people who came up to me to yell at me because I parked their stroller somewhere where they did not know where it was, Stroller parking is a whole nother disaster and I won't get into it because it, it is something that will like set me off. But even if they like came to yell at me, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Have a magical day. <laughs> because that's like what I was trained to do. And you know, I was making minimum wage, which was at the time, because I was in Florida in 2016, that was less than $10 an hour. So if you can make six figures in two hours, I, I don't really feel that bad for you. Even if it is like an affront to your creative artistry. If you're like me and have a lot of trouble figuring out what to make for dinner, HelloFresh offers 40 recipes to choose from weekly. With options to please even the pickiest eaters, you'll always find meals everyone at the table will enjoy. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit and it's easy to see why. They pick their seasonal ingredients at peak ripeness and they deliver them from the farm to your doorstep in less than seven days for the freshest taste. As someone who's working and was previously a student until last week, figuring out what to make on top of trips to the grocery store and then the actual cooking, I just don't have the time and then I end up spending too much on takeout. But I like how easy HelloFresh makes the process. They ship pre-portioned ingredients with recipes of your choosing and the majority of them only take around half an hour to make and they still taste really good. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 16Mina and use code 16Mina for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 16Mina and use code 16Mina for 16 free meals plus free shipping. The New Yorker also published an article on Marvel movies and how they've like taken over Hollywood and this was published June 5th. So the thing is with Marvel movies, I am not someone who watches them. I was into it until like probably around 2016. The last Marvel movie, I mean, I watched the two Black Panthers. I watched the first one because it got so much buzz and I was like, okay, I have to be culturally literate. And then I watched the second one because I did a costume review for it. So I wanted to be sure I knew what I was talking about. But um, other than those movies, oh, I also watched... <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't watch Marvel movies and then proceeds to list all the Marvel movies I've watched, which is all of them. But I would say, okay, I watched a couple of Marvel movies here and there, but I haven't really been tuned into the Marvel Cinematic Universe since um, Avengers Age of Ultron, which I think was 2015 or 2016. And when I tapped out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it wasn't even because I didn't like the movies at that point. It was because I didn't have the time to invest in keeping up with the timelines. And I feel like now they've just been like expanding so much where it's like multiple movies every year, multiple TV shows. And if you miss one thing, suddenly something happens in some other show that you're watching and you don't understand the context because you missed this one movie where they introduced it. So it just became a headache. I didn't have time. And once you fall out of it, I feel like it's easy to just stay out of it because to get back into it, it's just so much more work. It's kind of how I felt about K-pop because I used to be really into K-pop um, until, I think until I actually 
went to college. So I was really into it in high school. And then, or maybe it was like exams. It was a little bit before college. I had a bunch of exams. And then during that in time that I was like prepping for exams, I couldn't pay attention to what was happening. And then when I looked back into what my friends were talking about, I was like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about because I missed like 10 different debuts because the K-pop industry also like moves very fast like they're constantly churning out new music and churning out new eras so to speak and if you miss it you've like missed so much of the lore the fandom lore that it feels very alienating and then you just don't want to go back into it because you're like I I've missed so much so the thing is like since I've left the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe when I've tried to dip my toe back in again for research or because I I just like happen to be with people who want to watch a Marvel movie I've just like realized how corny there's like no other way for me to say it it was just like very corny dialogue and I think part of the reason is because Marvel movies try to capture a wide range of audience ages because for me like the superhero movies that I really liked was the Dark Knight trilogy directed by Christopher Nolan And I think it's because it was on the darker side. And I also grew up in high school loving comic books. I was obsessed with comic books. And every time I say this, people don't believe me because I don't come across as someone who loves comic books. But I was a geek for it. I had these um, Batgirl Converse that I would wear all the time. And I collected like a bunch of comic books. Granted, I was more into DC comics than Marvel, but... You know, I was still aware of what was happening. And I think one of the things I really liked about the comic books was how adult a lot of the themes were. Some of them can be really gory. Some of them, some of the villains, ugh. I remember there's like this one comic book issue where the villain was Professor Pig. And this was really creepy and really fucked up. His whole shtick was that he was kidnapping children and performing surgical experiments on them to transform them into these like animal hybrids. It was really, really scary. Like true Hannibal Lecter horror movie type of shit that you would not find in a Marvel movie today. But that's why I liked The Dark Knight because I felt like it did lean into this like edgier um, read of the comic books that is actually truer to the source material than these like, you know, happy-go-lucky, everything gets repaired in the end uh, Marvel movies. But, you know, despite my gripes, um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is incredibly profitable. So in this article, they note that um, collectively the MCU movies up until the 32nd one, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 have grossed more than $29 billion dollars which makes the franchise the most successful in entertainment history. Because of how successful it is, this has led Hollywood to invest more in franchises and in other existing intellectual property rather than focusing on like new stories and directorial visions and you know what Hollywood used to be more about. Audiences, especially since the pandemic, have also been seeing fewer films in the theater and streaming more from home, which has incentivized studios to lean on franchise movies that would provide like a visual elevated fun with heavy use of CGI in hopes that these visual features would pull in audiences to want to see them on the big screen. As a consequence, a whole genre of movies, so like adult dramas and rom-coms, have become like an endangered species (laughs) in Hollywood. And sure, some of them still exist, like Tar still exists. And I think they like 
tried making a rom-com with Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher recently, but that kind of flopped. But yeah, there's been like a couple movies here and there, but most of them do end up just going straight to streaming because generally like what's replaced these uh, more high-budget cinematic dramas are cinematic TV shows like Succession or The White Lotus. A lot of actors like major movie stars have also chosen to go Marvel, even like Oscar winning ones like Angelina Jolie, Christian Bale, Mahershala Ali, Brie Larson, and okay, actually Brie Larson, I have met Brie Larson and I didn't know I had met her because I met her during fashion week and she was so unassuming and I didn't expect her to be anywhere within like my social circles, but she was at this party I went to and she like came up to me and was like, oh, I love your hat. And I was like, thank you. And I was like, what's your name? And she was like, Brie. And then immediately when she said that, like everything just like clicked in my head. I was like, oh my God, I suddenly don't remember how to talk like a human. Anyways, nowadays I feel like it's becoming rare to come across an actor, a big actor who has not been in any Marvel movies. Timothy Chalamet has yet to go Marvel, though he apparently also auditioned for Spider-Man and didn't get it. But since then, he said that Leonardo DiCaprio once advised him no hard drugs and no superhero movies. I'm not saying that it's necessarily lowbrow as an actor to do a comic book movie, because back in the 70s, Marlon Brando was in Superman, and in 1989, Jack Nicholson was in Batman. I think it can be like a lot of fun, but the MCU by design can tie up an actor for years, so you're not just doing one movie and having it be done, like you are literally involved for seven years until they decide to kill you off and reboot the entire universe which is, I think, what was happening with Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans and that whole crew of Marvel actors. And the reason that these actors sign up to do it is obviously because they're getting, like, massive paychecks. But also, it's a way to stay relevant in the industry and among audiences because so many people are watching these movies. Earlier this year, Angela Bassett, she was the first actor to be nominated for an Oscar for a Marvel role in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And she told The New Yorker her reasons for why she took the role was, um, well, it's so modern. We try and stay current and they've got a winning formula. So yeah, I definitely can see why you would want to do a Marvel movie as an actor. However, the weird thing is that even though your presence is like on the big screen and so many people are getting exposed to your face and your acting, a lot of people end up associating you so heavily with that character where you are literally only that character, especially when you're in these contracts where you're playing that character for like several years. That's how people see you. They see you as the character and they see you less as the actor. So now compared to decades before, individual stars no longer attract audiences to theaters the way they used to. You would go to a Marvel movie to see Captain America or Iron Man. You wouldn't necessarily go to see Chris Evans or Robert Downey Jr. Another agent said, it's actually surprising to me how almost none of them have careers outside of the Marvel Universe. The movies don't work. Look at all the ones Robert Downey Jr. has tried to do. Look at Tom Holland. It's been bomb after bomb after bomb. And then on the screenwriting front, an agent complained, I worry for the film industry because if you're Chloe Zhao and you want to tell a story on a big canvas, mostly you're limited to trying to tell it on a canvas of a big superhero. It's a pair of golden handcuffs. 
The article then goes into what 2023 has looked like for Marvel. So in February, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania kind of flopped, failing to break $500 million, which is considered lukewarm, um, as well as received some of the worst reviews in Marvel's history. Part of the reason for its flop was the visual effects, which apparently looked muddy and generic. This is like a whole other stressed out part of the Hollywood industry, um, but the VFX industry in particular has been really unhappy the past few years. Marvel is its biggest client and is known for penny pinching and VFX firms underbid one another for work, which leaves projects understaffed and underfunded. And according to the article, effects artists have been seen crying at their desks during 80-hour weeks, tortured by Marvel's immovable deadlines, last-minute rewrites, and too many cooks in decision over, say, Thanos' exact shade of purple. And I think as far as I remember, and I could be wrong, but I don't think that the VFX industry has a union because it's so new, which has also affected, you know, um, how workers are getting treated. Look, I mean, my opinion is I don't want to yuck anyone's yum. And I can see why people like Marvel movies, especially coming from, you know, the background of someone who has enjoyed a lot of superhero media in the past. It's really cool to be a part of a universe that has all this like complex lore and try to figure out how all the puzzle pieces fit together and like turn on your little like detective brain. I think that can be really satisfying, but a lot of the problems are that there's only so much foresight you can have when you're doing something as large scale as a series of movies. So I'm sure that there have been tons of moments that don't necessarily make sense and it's just because when they were writing this movie they weren't thinking about writing a future movie that would continue the storyline they were creating like I remember um reading about how in Captain America in the first one the character Bucky he dies and the writer who wrote that didn't know that he was going to come back years later <laughs> but I think in general like the more foresight you have the better movies you create because you're able to drop in these easter eggs that will come into fruition later on and then on the flip side if you don't know the direction of where anything is going to go sometimes the decisions you make don't necessarily make sense because the example I can think of is Gossip Girl and um, Pretty Little Liars I didn't really watch Pretty Little Liars either but from what I heard about it they changed who was going to be A multiple times and then ended up on something that didn't really make sense because they were trying to be smarter than the audience. Like they didn't want the audience to be able to foresee who this character was. And so they kind of just like pinned it on someone who didn't make sense. And same with Gossip Girl. But I feel like that's bad writing. Like I feel like if audience members are able to put together who the villain is it means you've done a good job because you've left the correct easter eggs that would make sense when all tied together but i think sometimes with like tv shows they just want to be splashy they just want to like pull the rug from underneath someone and they don't really care about the story building aspect of it which is a shame but yeah i mean i i don't think marvel movies necessarily need to go away i just think that the sheer number of them need to decrease like i don't think we need to have like 10 Marvel projects a year and then also we're just in this phase where so much intellectual property is being repurposed over and over again like I think Warner Brothers is rebooting Harry Potter and making it a TV show which is so unnecessary like first of all we do not need to be giving JK Rowling any more money her transphobic ass like absolutely not and then also why 
Like the Harry Potter movies were great. Like we don't need to mess with anything that has already been produced, especially when it literally just finished like 10 years ago, which to me, I think that's still pretty new. Like I think you maybe can reboot something like 50 years in the future, but 10 years in the future, that's insane. And then in the end, it just makes me feel like there's less creativity going around and it it's less fulfilling for me to watch something that is a reboot or that is pulling from existing source material because I just know there's so many cool and fun stories that have yet to be told and it, it makes me sad to know that they're not getting the attention that they deserve because so much of Hollywood is focused on just generating income by doing what they know works. By the way, I am like a pretty big movie buff, a film buff, if you will. I hesitate on saying that because I feel like there's a whole um, idea in the culture of what a film buff is. And I also have a bit of imposter syndrome about it because I haven't seen Citizen Kane, despite actually watching a lot of old movies. For some reason, that has always eluded me. And also like Shawshank Redemption and basically anything that Spielberg has directed, for some reason, I've just completely hopped over it but I'm reclaiming it because I feel like it's a very dude oriented space so I've decided to challenge that and I encourage any person to challenge that also because nothing makes them angrier than a girl saying they love movies and then saying that Scarface was not actually that good so without further ado, if you're interested in any of the movies that I really liked um, that I've watched recently, I really liked Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I watched it with my mom, which was really special because it's about girlhood and this teenage girl's relationship. Or she's like a preteen. Her This preteen girl and her relationship with her mom. And it was just really sweet. My mom actually grew up reading Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret because... The original book was written by Judy Bloom, who is a fucking queen of children's literature, but she wrote it, I think, in the 70s. So it's been around for a while. And as far as I know, they've never made a movie about it, which is crazy because I also think it has like a pretty cult following. Even when I was a kid and I went to the library, I remember seeing it on the shelves. I never actually read it, but um, I have a copy of it now. <laughs> So I'm probably going to read it at some point, but it is just like a really sweet movie. The actors in it are so good. Like the kids, they're actually played by kids, which is crazy because I feel like with, you know, shows like Euphoria and um, Sex Education, it's like all the kids are played by people in their early 20s, sometimes even early 30s. And I understand why they do it because child labor laws, like obviously I don't want children to have to be on set for like long days. But um, the result is that it looks really weird. <laughs> like it's just not convincing to me because I, I'm so aware that these people look my age that I'm like, this. there's no way that these people are in high school. Anyways, um, they did hire younger actors for this movie and I felt like it really added to the sweetness of it. And also Rachel McAdams plays the mom and she's like so mother. I'm obsessed with Rachel McAdams. If you've never seen her notebook audition, you need to. Like she slayed it so hard. Um, it's on YouTube. It's available. I'm obsessed with her. Like the notebook itself is not a great movie, but she killed that audition and she killed that role. So are we entering the Rachel McAdams renaissance? I surely hope so.
And then, granted, because of my acting program, I haven't been able to watch that many movies this year as I would like to, um, specifically like new movies coming into theaters. But I've heard good things about Bo is Afraid. I like Ari Aster's work, so I do want to get around to it eventually. Just haven't had the time. But, you know, Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, um, Jordan Peele, who I feel like are creating elevated horror movies. I'm also excited to see the new Jennifer Lawrence comedy coming out. Um, And also, there's another comedy coming out that stars Stephanie Sue and Ashley Park. And um, it's like an Asian comedy. And it's, I think, directed by the same director who did Crazy Rich Asians. So I'm excited to see that too. So I wouldn't say like all hope is lost in Hollywood um, because there are definitely directors who are still making a splash and acting the actors out there are still, you know, doing their damn thing. It's just we need to tone it down on the IP-driven material. It's almost summertime, so if you prefer to shave like I do, I highly recommend trying out Athena Club's razor. I've honestly been really enjoying this razor. It's super easy to use and has a sleek design that makes shaving all the more fun and easy while also looking cute in the shower. My favorite part about their razor though is how clean it looks and feels. The blade on my old razor used to get all goopy after a few uses, but the water-activated serum on Athena Club's razors not only soothes the skin while shaving, containing shea butter and hyaluronic acid, but it never gets goopy on the blade. The razor kit is also only $10 and comes with two blade heads, a magnetic hook for shower storage, and your choice of handle color, of which there are plenty of options to choose from. I have the limited edition mint razor, but they even have black and white razors for all of you who prefer something more minimal. Switch to the better razor and show your skin you care with Athena Club. Get started today by shopping in-store at Target stores nationwide. Just head to the shaving aisle to find the razor kit, cloud shave foam, wax strips, and razor refills. So staying on the course of Hollywood and entertainment, This other article I read, which is called The Binge Purge, and this was published on Vulture June 6th. In this article, they were talking about the TV industry and how streaming has like fucked up the TV industry, which I thought was really interesting because I feel like it's something that we all know, but we're not really necessarily sure about how it's doing that. And this article just like is so complete and goes into everything about what is wrong with streaming today. And a lot of it just has to do with Well, one, the business front of it is that investors put so much money into the streaming industry from the beginning. It was basically like the cryptocurrency of the entertainment business, right? Because they just thought it was going to be like this huge thing. And then last year, in April 2022, they started pulling out a ton of money. So let's backtrack. What exactly happened, right? So Netflix was the first platform to introduce the streaming model. And specifically in 2013, the binge streaming model, when they dropped the entirety of um, the first season of House of Cards in one day. So that completely shook up the industry because beforehand, we were used to getting episodes once a week. And to be honest, I do prefer that model. I have been guilty of binging entire shows in one day before, but just like in general, I really loved the culture that surrounded weekly episodes because specifically, 
I remember this when I was watching Avatar The Last Airbender. I was like in the fifth or sixth grade when the last season dropped. And I don't even want to say dropped because they were just like premiering once a week. And I was like on all these internet forums and I was obsessed with just like hypothesizing on what was going to happen in the next episode, how it was going to end. And I feel like the kind of community I was able to immerse myself in was the product of not knowing. And sure, people do have Reddit pages now and discords where they talk about TV shows, but I feel like people talk about it more like, you know, after the first season, it's like, what's going to happen after this first season? Like, what are our predictions for season two? Whereas before, it was really like everything was so micro. Like, people were fixating on certain motifs, on certain, like, characters that were introduced in one episode and how that would um, affect the next episode. It was really cool. It was just a really fun part of the internet to be on at that point in time. And I know with Max or HBO Max um, being rebranded to Max, they also now drop um, episodes once a week, which I really appreciate because yeah, I just, I think it's an important part of fandom culture to be able to process TV shows at a slower pace. But, um, you know, Netflix did that and then afterwards they went on this major spending spree where they spent billions of dollars making new shows and also buying the rights to add existing ones into their libraries. Other platforms saw what Netflix was doing and they were like, oh my god, I want in on the success because all these investors were flocking to Netflix and they created their own streaming platform, streaming model, spending almost equal amounts of money. So Jeff Bezos apparently paid a quarter of a billion dollars, a quarter of a billion, that's like 250 million, right? 250 million dollars for the rights, for the rights to adapt the Lord of the Rings. And then actually making the show was another like several million dollars. It was just for the rights. (laughs) And then eventually with all these platforms propping up, the growth of them led to investors bailing on Netflix the first quarter of 2022, fearing that the extra competition would bring down the company's worth. Shortly after, the company announced it had lost subscribers for the first time since it started making its own content, leading to more than $50 billion evaporating in a single day. Jesus fucking Christ. And eventually, this ended up hurting other streaming platforms as well. A senior executive at a major streamer told vulture wall street woke up and said actually profitability is the only metric this ended up leading to a bunch of layoffs and budget cuts that affected the entire hollywood industry max disney plus paramount plus and hulu ended up purging entire series from their libraries for tax savings and some slash shows that had already wrapped production on full unaired seasons this is so different compared to years leading up to it when shows were just getting greenlit left and right We were kind of like in this TV development renaissance because there were so many jobs being offered in these writer rooms. There were so many writer rooms being created to um, create all these shows that were being greenlit. And at first, the way that streaming would pay was also better than TV because under the old model, creators would get a percentage of the profits that the show made. And shows made money through advertising, subscription fees, and syndication. So the more watched, the more successful your show was, the more money that you could make as a creator. So these profits that you would make post the show being released were back-end profits. But if a show flopped, it meant that writers got no back-end profits. 
In contrast, the streaming model called Cost Plus would pay up front, um, which would make every show a winner, but they just wouldn't pay a lot. So to make up for the lost back-end profits, uh, streamers created performance-based initiatives. So for example, they describe it in this article, a platform might promise a showrunner a $100,000 bonus for season one, a $250,000 bonus for season two, a $500,000 bonus for season three, and a $1.7 million bonus for season four. So when you're like a showrunner, you're like, oh my god, this is so great. But Many seemingly successful series did not actually end up going into production for four full seasons. You were actually really lucky if you even got like one or two seasons out. In the article, they say what no one saw coming was that they just killed the show before they ever had to pay that money out. Something else that the TV industry has been moving towards is a lot of prestige TV. So prestige TV is like a type of elevated TV that produces um, buzz around Emmy seasons. They're usually like cinematically embellished, kind of darkly serious with a cast of movie stars. This TV producer, Sean Ryan, he said, premium and streaming have been chasing more of a film attitude than a TV attitude, which is making shows more expensive, but oftentimes not as good as they used to be. You're seeing ideas that should have been movies being elongated into eight episodes, and they don't have the narrative engines to sustain them for that long. So Prestige's TV has really taken over, and I think that's also in part because Hollywood is not willing to invest in like more prestige films these days so the way that um, creators and writers can get their ideas greenlit is by transforming them into tv shows which you know as ryan says like it doesn't always work because sometimes you don't need that many hours to tell the story that you want to tell but as a result for this focus on prestige tv um a lot of like popular shows that used to be really popular no longer have a place where they fit in the primetime tv market so this one top agent that was interviewed said, it's hard to develop hit sitcoms when the people selling, pitching, buying, and programming them don't seem to like them. They don't seem to like what the audience likes. I mean, I'm sorry, but people seem to really like Two and a Half Men, and none of my writers want to write that. They all want to write Barry. And you know who watches Barry? Nobody. Okay, granted, to be fair, I haven't watched Barry, but I heard it's really good. <laughs> But I also think this is like one of the reasons why Abbott Elementary is doing really well because it is a sitcom and we're like in an age where there's not many sitcoms to choose from and people still like them. Like people still enjoy them. I still enjoy sitcoms because I feel like they're more casual viewing experiences. Like I'll usually throw on an episode of Sex and the City or Abbott Elementary while I'm eating lunch or something or eating dinner and I'm by myself. Just something that takes the edge off a day that I don't have to like really invest myself into thinking about that's kind of more lighthearted, that doesn't have this narrative flow where I can just watch a random episode on a random day. Like I don't have to watch the entire season to get like the full sense of the show. You know what I mean? I think also just with prestige TV, I mean like all TV, you have to be a good writer to create a successful show. But I honestly think prestige TV that's badly written especially is unbearable and it really annoys me because, and I'll tell you why, because the optics, the aesthetics of a prestige show is very beautiful and it tricks you into thinking that the show is going to be good. 
because they'll hire someone who's like a really talented actor. So the acting will, you know, it will cover up some of the mess. And then the sets are beautifully designed. The uh, camera work is nice sometimes. And even if the first like two or three episodes are, you know, kind of off-putting, you're like, maybe it'll get better. Maybe it'll get better because this has the same aesthetics of like amazing shows like Succession and White Lotus. So it has to be on that same level. I feel like that's like the internal monologue. And by the way, I have watched the first episode of Succession. So now I can speak on it in a way that is um, <laughs> that is not being a poser. But yeah, so I feel like you end up watching almost the entire show, if not the entire show, before you come to the conclusion that the writing was terrible and it never got better. And then it's just more frustrating because you spent hours of your life um, hoping for something better and it didn't get better. Versus I think with a sitcom or other kinds of populist primetime television, you can tell immediately whether or not you're going to vibe with a show within the first episode. And if you don't like the show, then you just don't continue watching it. And so you only wasted like 30 minutes of your life. Another problem that the article listed was that because of all these shrinking budgets, because these streaming companies are scaling back, a lot of the shows that are getting greenlit are, you know, once again, as I was talking about, relying on existing IP and like franchise stuff that they know is going to guarantee views, which ends up leading to less risks getting taken and ultimately less um, stories about marginalized people getting produced. So one of the anecdotes that they talked about was actually like really depressing because this one writer, Noi Reed, said, I recently spoke to the writers of a show that would have featured a trans lead. After years of development at a major studio, they were told they had to change the trans character to cis if they wanted the show to be produced. Another friend was developing a show at another major studio that featured a central trans storyline. Their show was canceled. When the manager tried to shop it to other studios, they were told that nobody wants to produce trans-focused shows any longer, citing the need for global appeal. And that's just, you know, that's, that's really heartbreaking and that's really fucked up because I feel like so many of the most amazing shows that have come out in the past couple years have been shows that showcase like diverse stories and I think that if we continue to expand on that we would get like even more amazing shows for example Beef came out earlier this year and that got like amazing reviews I watched Beef I loved it I was honestly so surprised how much I loved it based on the premise because the premise was just like two strangers get into a road rage incident which you know is just like not enticing at all but then once I was watching it, I was like, oh my god, this just gets crazier and crazier. And something else that I really liked about Beef is that they did not shy away from making jokes that white people or non-Asian people wouldn't understand. Like there was a moment I remember when Steven Yeun's character, who is Korean, he makes fun of um, Ali Wong's husband's character, who's Japanese, or you know, he's like, ugh, he's Japanese. And I feel like that's kind of a joke that mostly only Asian people would understand because of the inner Asian politics. Whereas white people, they kind of just see Asians as a monolith and they don't understand those little intricacies. And so I, I don't know, I just like if it's moments like those where I feel like these jokes are for me and for my people. And that's a cool thing to recognize as an audience member who is from a marginalized group. And what's also really cool is that despite these sort of inside jokes that pepper throughout the show, 
it still was massively successful. And I had friends who are not Asian who were like, this is an amazing show. So, you know, it's it's nice that we're now in a time period where shows can cater one to a targeted community, but then they can also be enjoyed for what they are on a massive scale. Because honestly, that's like been the way it's always been. It's just been with white stories. For instance, I just read an article on diners, American diners. That's really good. It's on Eater. Um, But, you know, they were talking about diner culture and the history of the American diner and the nostalgia for American diners that a lot of um, particularly white Americans have, even starting like in the 70s, because that's when diners were going out of style. And there were movies like Grease that really appealed to this um, nostalgic sensibility that people had for diners. But once again, there were no people of color in Greece. There were no gay people in Greece. Actually, you know, some of them were gay coded, but like, you know what I mean? There were no openly queer characters in Greece. It was a narrative that really prioritized the story of the um, dominant group. Even the fact that um, a bunch of the scenes took place in an American diner. And the diner has always been kind of the symbol of white American middle class culture. It reminds me of, um, you know, when people were on Tumblr romanticizing the 1950s and there'd always be someone who'd be like, well, you can still get milkshakes and racism now. So, (laughs) but you know what I mean? Like diner culture doesn't hold the same kind of symbolism within um, minority communities as they do with white communities. So even aside from just the optics of the characters themselves, it's like, the settings, the symbols, um, everything about the movie kind of captures this white sensibility. It was still enjoyable, for me at least, um, and for a lot of people I know who don't necessarily fit into that dominant narrative, but I never saw myself in Greece, and that's fine. That's like completely fine. But now we're finally like in this age where um, I am getting stories that center narratives that I can relate to and I don't necessarily like them better or less than other stories that don't center me it's just nice to have a range it's nice to be able to have stories you can connect to on a cultural level and stories that you don't connect to it's just for much of history there were only stories that I couldn't connect to (laughs) culturally like I I just want to clarify that this is just like culturally like obviously there are certain themes that affect everyone um that everyone can associate themselves with but um yeah I'm just talking about like cultural representation and you know as I said they do well like uh beef performed really well everything everywhere all at once which I know is a movie but you know still kind of centers like an Asian story It was like the most awarded movie at the Academy's ever. And Squid Game, which I know is not Hollywood, but it's like Netflix's best show of all time. And Abbott Elementary, which takes place in a predominantly black Philadelphia public school, was ABC's highest rated comedy telecast in three years. And, you know, when you think about it, it's like these shows would not have been greenlit if they were pitched years ago and yet now they're widely successful people love them they're making tons of money it's like duh people like watching stories that they haven't seen before but the potential problem now that this article is alluding to is that because 
um, streaming shows are not making as much money as they did before. And because no one's going to the movie theater like they used to, Hollywood and TV, they're all getting pressure to just start investing more in IP-driven material over these kinds of stories that um, we've been able to get in the past couple years that have been really different, really nice, really original, and um, that not only like uplift the stories of people from different communities, but also hire on writers from those communities. So yeah, you know, once again, I'm dropping hints that the writers need to win the writer's strike. And I think the problems that I'm talking about in this episode we're still kind of at the cusp of them. Like, obviously, there have been tons of shows that were really good that have gotten canceled because of streaming company stupid bullshit issues. But this is all kind of worst case scenario thinking because there are still so many shows that are out there and that are going to be released that are the kind of work that we would that we deserve as an audience to see. So I don't think necessarily that we're in like crisis mode yet it's just like these are just things that are on the horizon if writers don't win if actors um don't win their negotiations if directors don't win their negotiations I don't actually know what's going on with the DGA I'm kind of unplugged on that front but um you know it's just like there's a reason why all these strikes are happening in place and I know I talked about it last episode last chatty episode two it's just like constantly on my mind because as um I've graduated my program and I've been talking more to people who are in the industry it's like wow this is really not a great time to be um Hollywood adjacent (laughs) right now but you know for an audience like there's so many shows to watch still like for me I just started Succession I know I'm late to the club on that one I also started watching Dairy Girls which I think is like sitcom-y um I mean I mean it's like 25 30 minute episodes really easy to digest it's a comedy it's lighthearted so far and I'm really enjoying it I haven't decided whether or not I'm gonna tune into the idol yet like it's become kind of a meme on Twitter every time an episode drops, but I also feel like less people are interested in it than when all the buzz was happening around it when that Rolling Stone expose dropped because I also just feel like people are a little fatigued with bad TV. Like we just have so many um, shows out there where it's like, why waste your time on watching something overtly terrible? And I'm kind of of the same mindset. For me, I would just want to watch it if I felt like it was going to have a cultural impact. But as of now, it seems like people are kind of over it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just like on the wrong circles of Twitter. (laughs) All right, guys, it's getting a little late over here and I'm starving and need some dinner. I need to cook myself some dinner. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. I'll see you next week and bye.